This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Alex, an African grey parrot, is so far the only non-human animal to ever ask an existential question about himself, which means he was self-aware enough to understand his own existence. Alex was owned and used by researcher Irene Pepperberg, an animal psychologist, to better understand how parrots can learn from and mimic humans. However, as time went on, Pepperberg realized that Alex wasn't just reciting her actions in words, he was learning and thinking for himself. For example, when Pepperberg would ask what color corn is, even though there was no corn visible, Alex would answer yellow. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganapake Pagan, and joining me today is author and scientist Irene Pepperberg. She wrote all about Alex and her scientific investigations in a wonderful book called Alex and Me, How a Scientist and a Parrot Discovered a Hidden World of Animal Intelligence and Formed a Deep Bond in the Process. Hello, my name is Irene Pepperberg. I'm a research associate at Harvard University and a part-time lecturer, and I study avian cognition, particularly with great parents. So, Irene, I read your book, I think it was back in 2011. And, of course, until I had this job, I've never had a reason to call you. But I've wanted to speak to you for the longest time. (laughs) It changed my perception of how I saw, not just parrots, but animals in general. So before I get into the nitty gritty, if you could tell us back in the day what people, I guess, what was the accepted belief when it came to animal cognition? Well, in the 1970s, people were interested, were just beginning to become interested in animal cognition. There was a book in that came out in the late 60s that basically was the first Time It was Hulse, Fowler, and Honig talking about parallels between human and non-human cognition. But this was the very, very beginning. It mainly was interested in connections to primates because they were our closest living relatives. Right. Ape cognition was still pretty much considered an oxymoron. And when you say oxymoron, did it mean that people just weren't paying any attention research-wise because it was just an accepted fact? Well, people were only looking at pigeons. They were doing very simplistic types of work. And on the types of studies they were doing, there would be a hierarchy. You know, the, the, the non-human primates would be at the very top and they get it right away and, you know, ace the task. And then under that came the monkeys and under that came the rats and mice and under that came the pigeons. Okay. And even under that came the goldfish. Right. And so when it comes to things like pigeons and goldfish and rats, there really was very little comparative work with human beings, I'm assuming. Right, right. People were looking at at very simplistic types of things like match to sample and oddity from sample, just beginning to start ideas of categorization. But it was very, very limited. And again, it was based on an operant procedure where you starved your animal down to 80 percent of its normal body weight and put it in a little box and tried to do the tasks by showing them, you know, different colored lights. And we know that a lot of these animals are social creatures. They don't do well when isolated from other members of their their flock, group, or whatever. We know that starving an animal down to 80% of its normal body weight, although it's considered 
not really starving because the argument is that in the wild, they're never at 100% of free feeding weight. We know that, you know, it's, they don't perform as well as when they're well fed. And there are some studies to suggest this now. So um, it was a very different way of even doing science. One of the elements that I'm curious about, because reading your book, you have a relationship with this parrot. And I wanted to know what that was like. Because when I read your book, it felt that it was this close and personal relationship with this animal. And, and, and honestly, I had no idea how much of it was the way you wrote that story and how much of it was a real emotional connection. And that's what I've always wanted to know. Well, when Alex and I were working together, he was my colleague. He was my closest colleague. I had to maintain a distance, an emotional distance, because I had to be able to evaluate what he was doing dispassionately. Um, I could not take the possibility that any emotional feelings I had for him would color the collection of the data. So it was very important that I maintain a certain amount of distance. Didn't mean I didn't care about him. I mean, you work with people every day, but you're not emotionally invested in them the way you are with a partner or a significant other or a family member. And that was what I had to do for all those years. It was only after he died and that relationship was no longer necessary that all the emotions that I had pushed aside for all those years came into play. So why a parrot? At, at what point did you think, this is what I was going to do and what was the point of inspiration? I had always had little budgerigars as a child. Um, I lived above a street. I had no playmates, no human playmates. My mother would have been a great, great parent in today's society where she could have gone to work and I could have gone to daycare and I could have or had a nanny or, you know, someone like that. But that was the early 50s. And she was stuck with me above a store. (laughs) She was not not a happy camper. She took care of all my physical needs, not my emotional needs. My father was working full time as a teacher. He was going to school to get his master's degree and he was taking care of his mother who was quite ill. So he'd wake me up in the morning and kiss me hello, and then I wouldn't see him until the next morning sometimes. So he was pretty much absent, not intentionally, but just because of his his life at that point. So he bought me a little bungee, a little green, you know, the, the dime store parakeets. And that was my companion. And, you know, I don't know how much the bird actually talked at that point. I can't remember, but this was my companion. So I think I kind of imprinted on this little bird. And then we fast forward. I was very good in science. I was encouraged in chemistry, Um, was in Harvard graduate school in theoretical chemistry, getting my doctorate. And I realized that I really wasn't that interested in this field. And at the same time, the NOVA programs began. They were the scientific programs that basically explored all different areas of science every week. And they had a series of programs on animal-human communication and animal cognition. So there were these studies on the signing chimps, the work being done with the dolphins, with sign language and sound. And then there was this talking about how birds learn their song and learn to communicate. And it all came together in my head saying, well, wait a minute. Parrots talk. They can talk. They learn their vocalizations. They learn speech. Why can't these birds be used? in the same types of studies, but now using human speech. I mean, I had budgies over the years in in grade school and high school that actually did talk. So that's when it came together. 
And I finished the doctorate in theoretical chemistry, but at the same time, I was spending huge numbers of hours of weeks reading up on anything that was available on animal intelligence. I was sitting in on courses at Harvard on avian behavior, on child language acquisition, which was not novel topic at that point. You have to remember that in 57, Skinner wrote a book basically saying that all child language was trained. I'm simplifying it quite a bit, but that's the one-liner. And Chomsky wrote a book the same year, basically saying, nope, there's an innate language acquisition device and all kids need is a little bit of input and this acquisition device just kicks in. And people realized they hadn't truly studied how children learn their language. So there were all these labs coming up at this point studying child language acquisition, and some of them were at Harvard. So I sat in on those courses. It was quite a, a difficult time, but interesting time in my life. And of course, Alex was a purely random choice on your part. Yes, yes. So we fast forward. Um, my then husband gets a job at Purdue University. We move out to the Midwest. And I decide I'm going to do this, this study. And we go to a pet store and there's eight or nine of these parrots in a cage. And the fellow just picks one out randomly for me. Huh. There was nothing special about this bird that nobody could argue on the road that he was somehow specially bred or something particularly different about him. He was just a random choice. But as far as birds go, looking back, was there anything exceptional about Alex? I think what was exceptional was the way we raised him. Basically, this bird had humans in his life 10 to 12 hours a day. We weren't always testing him, but we were always talking to him. He was always the center of attention. And that made it important for him to learn to communicate with us because we were using English and we didn't understand parrot. And we couldn't we could learn parrot, but he could learn English. And he did. And we used a modeling technique to train him. He was able to understand what he was supposed to learn. And for us, sort of his history. My other birds have never had that. Um, they've always been in labs with other birds. They've always had interruptions. Alex would, you know, ruthlessly interrupt all of Griffin's training sessions, telling him to talk clearly and say better, answering for him, interrupting. If I asked Griffin what color, Alex would say, no, tell me what shape. It was very hard for Griffin to learn under those circumstances. We also tried other training techniques with Griffin. We used videotapes. We used single trainers. We used audio tapes. None of those really worked. It was only that modeling technique that worked. So, you know, our other birds just didn't have that exclusive interaction that Alex had. So, so lay it out for me. Given the circumstances you've just described and given the understanding of animal cognition at the time, what were your discoveries? And basically, I showed that a parrot, a non-human, non-primate, non-mammalian creature, could acquire certain elements of English speech. I never called it language, but he learned a certain level of interspecies communication. And we could use what he learned to examine his cognitive abilities. And what we learned was that he was working at the level, cognitively, of about a four- to five-year-old child. The communication skills were never above that of about a two-year-old, okay, at the most. But the cognitive allowed us to study the cognitive abilities and show that he did just as well as the apes and the dolphins. So this is really important for people to understand. Very recently, there have been some papers coming out showing that the 
brains of these animals, these avian brains, although they're organized completely differently from those of the mammalian and primate brain, function in the same way. They have the same, you know, incredible density of neuronal packing and organization that allows them to do the same types of level of cognitive processing as the non-human primates. What did this mean for the science community at the time? And how did they react to it? Well, the last question is probably the most pertinent one. I would give talks and people would simply say, but, but there's no cerebral cortex. How can he do this? And I'd say, look, here are my data. I'm not, I'm not faking the data. These are the data. You go find the brain structures, which, of course, 40 years later, they did. Um, maybe not 40 years, 30 years. But the point being that people were surprised. They were, a lot of people still don't know about the work. It's just what it is. Well, so that's the thing that I find most perplexing, Irene. I mean, why don't they know about the work and why don't they want to believe it given the overwhelming data? Well, a lot of people don't know about it because they simply have no interest in animals, all right? Or if they do, they're just interested in, you know, how to train their dog to do tricks. And I don't see that in a bad way. It's just what people are interested in. People have lots of different interests. Um, We are not curing some dread disease, but you know, bettering the lives of humans. We're bettering the lives of parrots, hopefully, but but not necessarily of humans. So uh, the interest levels are, are not that, that great. It's very hard for people to understand that you could have a parallel evolution for 300 million years that results in that same type of level of intelligence as in a great ape. It's, it's a real stretch. But when you were doing this research, Throughout all your years working with Alex, did you have any grand objective in mind? Well, to, to show people, just we could, the level of ability of these birds. We're still doing the same thing. I mean, I'm doing work with Griffin now. That's really exciting. Um, we just published a paper showing that he can understand Kinitsa figures. Okay, that imagine a blue blob of paper. And on that blue blob of paper, you put three Pac-Men in a triangular array. And I ask you, you know, what shape is the blue figure that you see there? Now you, you see a triangle. There is no triangle. It's an illusory figure. This is a Kinitsa, you know, it's called a Kinitsa figure. There's no triangle, but you see one and he sees it as well. Okay, so that means, again, that his visual system, which is organized completely differently from ours. I mean, these birds fly. They fly 60 kilometers a day. They're flying through the rainforest and flying through all sorts of different, you know, know, around different barriers and such. Their visual system seems to process the information, at least their brains and visual system connected, process it in similar ways than ours do. I mean, we're, we're still learning an awful lot about these birds. Understanding a part of what the animal can do is is the problem because we are we're being quite isolationist in the way we study these creatures and the world around us. Talk to me about some of the unanswered questions you still have with regards to animal cognition in birds, for example. Okay, so right now we're doing a study on exclusion. Um, we know that at a simple level of exclusion, animals do some simple level of it. So the idea is if I show you that I've got 
a tr- you know, two treats and I'm hiding them under two separate cups. So you see me do that. And you see me then remove a treat from one cup. You know to go to the other cup. Okay. Now make it a little harder. So I'm showing you two different treats under the two cups. And then I take, you know, take this tray away and I do something for a moment behind your back. And then I come back and I show it to you and I'm eating one of those treats. Okay. So now you have to infer that if you want a treat, you have to go to the other cup, but you think, well, maybe A, maybe B. It's not A anymore. So it's still maybe, but this is the type, some of the things we're trying to test. We know Griffin has passed the marshmallow test. Uh, You know what that is, the delayed gratification. So if we give him a choice between a piece of cereal and a cranberry, he'll wait 15 minutes for the cranberry. Cranberry versus nut, he'll wait 15 minutes for the nut. Nut versus skittle, he'll wait 15 minutes for the skittle. Okay, all the birds tested have tested very well for this better. No birds have yet been able to delay gratification for more. There's some evidence in apes of delaying gratification for more. Some of the tasks are cleaner than others. Um, None of the tasks have been exactly the same as given to the young children, where the children have to just sit there with the treat in front of them with no barriers, no nothing, and just refrain. That's what Griffin did for the better. You know, he couldn't hide it. It just sat there waiting. Sometimes he actually took it and threw it away so he didn't have to look at it. Um, But basically, he did that for better. So now we're trying to figure out a way of testing him for more to see if we can figure out some way of setting up the system that he'd be willing to wait for more. God God knows I'd wait 15 minutes for a Skittle. (laughs) Alex sadly died in 2007 at the age of 31. His last words were to Irene the night before when he said, You be good. See you tomorrow. I love you. Pepperberg has since started training other parrots, none of which are as smart as Alex was. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.